There are certain problems that a pastor faces whenever he talks about the subject of giving. And chief among those problems would be the problem of boredom, right? Because most of you are thinking even sitting in your pew, in your seat, same seat you sit in all the time, right? Make sure nobody else is in that seat. The thing you think about when I say the sub- or speak about the subject of giving is, Pastor, I've heard it all. There's not a lot of things you're going to say that we don't already know here at First Baptist Church. And so people feel like you know what I'm going to say before I say it. So therefore, you're sometimes stricken with boredom. It reminds me of the story of FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You remember that charismatic leader? He's known for his quotes, quotes and, and different things. But he was standing, he would always have to stand in the receiving lines at the White House. And he kind of got perturbed because nobody ever listened to what he had to say. They'd just come through and shake his hand and, and walk away and no one ever listened. So one day at the reception, he decided he would try an experiment. And as each person filed by and reached out his hand or her hand to shake his hand, he murmured under his voice, under his lips, I murdered my grandmother today. Several hundred people came by in the line, and he murmured over, muttered over and over and over again, I murdered my grandmother today. And they would say things like, congratulations. We're so proud of you. You're doing a wonderful job. And even added in, God bless you. He finally got to the end of the receiving line, and then came the ambassador from Bolivia. And when President Roosevelt said, I murdered my grandmother this morning, the ambassador leaned over and whispered into his ear, I'm sure she had it coming. <laughs> so I'm sure that some of you are like the guests that come through, came through the line back at this reception. You already know what I'm going to say, so you're not going to uh, think too much about what I'm going to say or think about it because you've heard it all before. Let me give you a few reasons why the subject of giving is so vitally important for our church and for all churches. Number one, it's important because there's so much confusion around the issue. you got folks on either side of the spectrum that are going to argue day in and day out about what the prospect is and what the Bible teaches. So it's important for us to learn this. I'm new here, still the new guy, right? And you need to know what my thoughts are about giving. Uh, Not only that, but we need to know what the Word of God has to say. You know me well enough, after three months or so, that we're going to preach the Word. So we must find out what the Bible has to say. It's also important, number two, because of the financial condition of churches in America. Now, I realize that maybe you give a tithe, but you don't give it all to your church. Perhaps you give it to other charitable things or other mission agencies and things like that. I realize that, but even if you take that in consideration, across the board in church life, and I've, I don't check records here, that's not my job. I don't, it doesn't matter to me what you give as long as you're honoring God, right? But on average, 2 to 3%, uh, on average, in a church this large, only on, the families, giving families, only give between the average of 2 and 3% of their income. That's just, that's the average. Now, we could be different here at our church. So, of course, with the financial condition of churches, we need to find out what the Bible says, right? The third reason is because of the doctrinal issues at hand. 
And this is paramount, right? The real question is, since we know that tithing is in its original state was given to us in the Old Testament, what relevance does it have today for New Testament Christians? Is that not a valid question to ask? What, what is it that we're supposed to learn from it? Really, all the, those big questions lurking behind, or the smaller ones lurking behind the bigger question is, tithing belongs to the age of law, not the age of grace. So how should we deal with tithing? If it was strictly given under law, of course, we're going to learn about that in a few moments. In our mind, we think, well, tithing belongs to the age of law, and we're the age of grace, so what should be our response? How do we relate to those two concepts? Is there a place for tithing in the age of grace? So, here's what we're going to do. We're going to study the Word and find out. And I promise you, I will say a few things you hadn't heard before. All right? If you'll listen, I promise you, you'll get some things you didn't hear before on the subject of giving. The first thing let's do is let's define the word tithe. It is a Hebrew word that means one-tenth. Literally, a tithe is one-tenth of anything. And so in the Old Testament, a tithe was more than just giving one-tenth of your money to God. If you had ten cows, you are to give one out of ten to the Lord, right? If you had ten pounds of grain... The one pound that you gave to God was your tithe before God. So the definition of a tithe is one-tenth of anything. That's what the word itself means in the Hebrew, one-tenth of anything. With that definition, what I want to do is do an Old Testament survey. And you're thinking, survey from this preacher? We're in trouble, right? But no, that's not the goal. The goal, I could pick out numerous Old Testament passages, but the ones I've chosen, I hope, will show for you clearly what God intended for the tithe, and you know what? It's not a whole lot different from what you learn in the New Testament. And sometimes we make that clean break and we think, well, that's Old Testament. Well, number one, you're discarding three quarters of your Bible, which would be a terrible thing for you to do. And the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament, right? And so let's turn first to Genesis 14. Tithing in the Old Testament. We're going to look at four passages just briefly this morning. You know the story of Genesis 14, Abraham is coming back from war. He had gone against Cador Lamera and the kings that were allied with him. And he's gone into this battle and it's bloody and it's bruising and it's, it's a vicious battle. And in the end, Abraham triumphed and now he's coming back with all the spoils of war. He's got the slaves that he captured. He has soldiers that he had taken into captivity. He has all the... Uh, food, he has grain, he has wine, he has oil, he has cattle, he has sheep. And with all those spoils of war, Abraham was making his way back as a victorious general. Surely he had a little bit of pride welling up inside of him. And on the way back, he, he bumps into this unusual character named Melchizedek. I did a wedding one time, and the name of the groom was Melchizedek Cordova Abanez Jr. Took me a while uh, to, to learn that, make sure I had that down when I pronounced them husband and wife. But here is Melchizedek, and pick up the story with me in chapter 14, beginning in verse 18. Listen to the word. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth 
What's the statement say? Of everything. So we've got this interesting character, Melchizedek. He's listed twice in the Old Testament, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And then you know the pickup in the book of Hebrews on Melchizedek, which is typology of who Christ is. I don't have time to preach that. But some of you probably have that question ingrained somewhere in your mind through the years. Preacher, who is Melchizedek? Well, we're not going to deal with that today. But we will say that he is a type or pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he shows up on the stage of history. He interrupts Abraham as he's coming back from a victorious battle. He introduces himself as a priest of the Most High God. He blesses Abraham, and then he blesses God. And it is most instructive to note Abraham's response. Then Abram gave him a tenth, or tithe, it's the same word in the Hebrew, of everything. That meant a tenth of the slaves, soldiers, foodstuffs, garments, gold, silver, tent, and the tenth of everything that he had taken from the enemy in that victory. Why did Abraham do this? Why did Abraham respond with this act of submission? Because of who Melchizedek represented. Melchizedek represented God. Who told Abraham to give the tithe? Well, we don't know that. We don't know the answer. But this is the very first time the word tithe or tenth is used in the Old Testament. And here's what is interesting. This is not a command here. This is a voluntary act when Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything that he had. And why did he do this? Because the king gave him the victory. God gave the victory. I mean, Abraham was allied with all these people, all these uh, pre, all these uh, uh, national leaders, and they win the victory. But in reality, it is God who gave the victory. In essence, Abraham was saying, by giving you this tenth, I am implicitly admitting that I did not win the victory. God won the victory. Victory comes from the Lord alone. And by giving a tenth of the spoils, the tithe to Melchizedek, Abraham implicitly recognized the truth of verse 20. Did y'all see that? Blessed be the God of the Most High who delivered your enemies into your hand. So folks, in my mind, this is extremely significant. This is not tied to the Mosaic Law. This is tied to a man's heart who knew full well who gives him the victory in life. Amen? Y'all getting this? Do I need to read Genesis 14 again? The first time we read it, the first time we, it's given to us is a voluntary action. It is a sign of submission to God Almighty in gratitude for all the blessings that He's given. Now set that aside and let's run over to Leviticus. We're going to skip over 400 years. Leviticus. Take your Bible, Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 through 34. And here's what you learn right off the bat. This is directly under the law. We're in the law here when you get to Leviticus chapter 27. And listen to the text of Scripture. We're going to read Leviticus 27. By, some of you probably hadn't been in Leviticus in 20 years. It's not something we read devotionally too often. But God is holy. That's the theme of Leviticus. But if you read through your Bible chronologically, perhaps you have been reading in Leviticus. But chapter 27, verse 30. Listen to this. We're skipping ahead 400 years. Here's the Mosaic Law. Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of 
herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the shep- of the herdman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good or bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy. It shall not be, it shall be redeemed. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. Do you know, first, clearly, this is under the law. This is given under the law of Mount Sinai. What happened in chapter 14 of Genesis was pre-law. This is definitely the law. The second thing is the tithe of the Old Testament was to encompass all of man's material possessions. Did you all note that? It's not just uh, the, the, the check you get when you work all week in the Old Testament times. This was everything. His livestock, his cows, his sheep, his wine, his oil, his grain. And it was to be given to God. It also says that the Jews were given in this text every tenth or as you count through, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. The tenth one, every time they come through, would go to the Lord. Now, if they counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and the tenth one was the best bull you had, guess what? It went to the Lord. I guess they were secretly praying, I hope the one that's tenth is a scrawny one. And that's okay if it was a scrawny one. But as you count them out with the herdsman's staff, when you hit the tenth one, that tenth one went to the Lord. So, the key point is that God is very clear that with with the Jews, they were to give him a tenth of everything. Is everybody with me so far? Voluntary act, God gives the victory. And here it is, they're giving a tenth of everything because God is holy. Now let's uh, fast forward 40 years. Deuteronomy chapter 14. Make your way there. I'll give you a chance. I'm going to beat you because I have it marked, right? Chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. Or a few, few years down the line, 40 years have passed. The children are on the banks of the Jordan. Remember this, Moses is about to die. He's singing his swan songs. There's several of them we could have chosen. But in Deuteronomy 14, 22, he's going to give us a real important issue when it comes to giving or tithing. Deuteronomy 14 beginning in verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year and before the Lord your God in the place that He will choose to make His name dwell there. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord, your God, in all your ways. Pretty clear, isn't it? Very clear. In the New Living Bible, it puts us this way. The purpose of tithing is to teach you always to fear the Lord your God. Note that very carefully, folks. That's the purpose of the tithe. It's not a legalistic regulation. It was more than just an Old Testament income tax. God had a special purpose in asking His people for a tenth, and it was to teach them to put God first in life. You put me first because I deserve to be first. You put God first in everything. Many Christians have never learned that basic principle uh, and secret of giving, giving to the Lord. Uh, They don't put God first in their giving. When they get their paycheck, they pay everything else first. And then, if there's anything left over, they give it to the Lord, right? They pay their mortgage. Got to do that, right? We don't want the bank to come get us. Or we pay our rent. We pay for our groceries. 
We have to pay a little bit down on the credit card bill every month. And then we'll go buy some food and we'll go buy some clothes. And we'll also squirrel a little bit away for vacation. And if there's any left, then we'll give that to the Lord. Aren't we guilty of that? I want to submit to you that God not only knows what you give, He knows when you give it. He not only knows the priority of how much, He knows the priority of when you give it. And many Christians have never learned that principle that God is watching over us. Not only does the amount of your giving tell something about your priorities, but the order of your giving also tells something about your priorities to the Lord, right? When you get your paycheck, what check do you write first? The answer is always the same. You write the one that is most important. Oh, that hurts, doesn't it? You're welcome. We write the one that is most important. When you get your paycheck, which one do you write first? The answer is always that. By that act, you're making a statement on what is first and foremost in your life, who you're putting first in your life. And the Bible says, according to Deuteronomy 14, it's everything. Now, let's go forward a little bit more, all the way to the last book of the Old Testament, which is written by an Italian prophet named Malachi. All right? Y'all know I'm kidding, right? All right. Malachi. Malachi chapter 3. God, start talking about giving and you won't even laugh, right? (laughs) Malachi 3. Now, we've moved a thousand years down the road. We started back in Genesis, went to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and now we've jumped across 1,000 years of Jewish history and listened to the Word of God. Now, he's talking to disobedient people, and here's what he says in Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God says in your tithes and contributions, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What an awesome text of Scripture. The first thing about it is it's a warning, right? Folks, you're robbing me, God says to the Israelites. I told you to give me a tithe, but you're robbing me, and you're consuming it on yourselves, and you're being cursed. Think about that. God is saying to His own people, I've cursed you because you've not put me first. That's what He's saying to the people in Malachi's day. Second, there's a challenge issued to the doubters. God says, put me to the test. The King of glory. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God owns the cattle on the thousand hills and the hill. Right? He does, and the God of eternity is saying, try me out. Dare to obey me and see if I won't open up the heavens like floodgates and bless your socks off. Right? I woke some of you up that are sleeping in case you were born. Bored, I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. I'm going to do something for you. You just dare me and put me to the test if you'll be obedient. And three, there's a purpose revealed in the giving of the tithe, right? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And that's a secondary purpose of the tithe. I think the number one purpose is that you will fear God. You'll put Him first in everything in your life. The secondary is that God's house might be fully supplied. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. Here's God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, saying to His people, you're robbing me in order to get more, and because you're robbing me, you end up getting less. If you would dare to give me what really belongs to me, I will bless you beyond all of your comprehension. 
Now, let's put it all together from the Old Testament. Let's sum it up with those four passages. First, in relation to God, the tithe meant to glorify God and to recognize Him as holy and the source of all of our human blessings. Second, in relation to God's people, the purpose of the tithe is to teach us to put God numeral uno in all of our lives. He is to be first. And third, in relation to the nation of Israel, the purpose was to ensure that God's work may be fully supplied. Don't you see how beautiful this is? In relationship to God, the tithe demonstrates that He is the source of all human blessings. In relation to the tithe in the people, we put God first in our lives. And thirdly, in relationship to God's work, the tithe makes sure that the work of the Lord is fully supplied. Aren't you glad now that I'm getting ready to go to the New Testament? That's tithing in the Old Testament. Now let's talk about it giving in the age of grace. Let's talk about that for a few moments. The real question comes, once we've learned that from the Old Testament, what bearing does that have upon the New? What does the New Testament say about Christian giving? And let's survey, for our edification, two particular passages. One will be found in 1 Corinthians 16, if you'll make your way there. 1 Corinthians 16. Sixteen, beginning in verse one of Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. You know, this was a troubled church. You had some rotten church members in it, and Paul still calls them saints. So when I start feeling really bad about y'all, I start thinking about the church of Corinth, and I feel a whole lot better. <laughs> oh, lighten up, folks, lighten up, right? <laughs> now, listen to what he says. Chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside, store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now this is a great, concise, one-verse teaching, or two-verse teaching, on the subject of giving. Now, about the collection. Do what I told you to the Galatian churches. First day of the week, each one of you, notice that each is personal. A sum of money, that means proportionate, in keeping with the collection. And so it is proportional. It is regular, right? It is personal, and it is proportional, according to this text. So it's very clear. Giving needs to be regular on the first day of every week. It is to be personal, that giving is given by each one of us, and it is to be proportional, set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Everybody awake? Y'all getting nervous? Right? This is what the Bible says. Christian giving is to be regular, personal, and proportional. What is proportional giving? Well, folks, it's pretty simple. The more you're blessed by God, the more you are to give. It's quiet in here. The more you're blessed by God, the more you ought to give. If you have little blessing financially, materially, then you are only able to give a small portion, perhaps like the widow's might, who gave actually more than all the rest of them. Now you're getting it, right? She gave proportionately. But the more you're blessed, the bigger your portion ought to be. 10% can, 
is not the primary issue in the New Testament. For some of you that are gasping right now because you're bound to legalism, hear me out until I get done, okay? I didn't tell you you shouldn't give 10%. I'm just telling you that's not the overriding issue in the New Testament. If you can find that verse, show me. You're not going to find that verse, okay? But the fact of the matter is, the 10% is not the issue in the New Testament. Some Christians who greatly are greatly blessed ought to give 15, 20, 25, and 30. You say, oh, I can't take that prayer. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. You don't have to agree with me, okay? But in, act, in actuality, you're disbelieving the Word and not your preacher. Okay? So this is proportionate giving. Do y'all believe that grace always exceeds the law? You say amen, right? I need to get that on record. Which standard is higher? A flat 10% in the Old Testament or proportionate giving in the New? Now let's ask that question again. Does grace always exceed the law? Oh, this crowd over here quit saying that once I said that, right? The fact is, folks, proportionate giving is higher because you've been greatly blessed by Jesus. Proportionate New Testament giving. You've been blessed beyond measure. And if you'll trust God in that area, you'll soon be given more proportionately than you would have ever given under the Old Testament law of 10%. So, for some of us who make so much money, the 10% can actually be, as Fred Smith would say, for the rich in America, tithing can be an excuse not to give generously. Because for many people, the tithe is nothing more than pocket change. Uh, there's no sacrifice. There's no suffering with that whatsoever. You don't even miss it, it at all. The standard of giving, folks, under grace is so much higher than the standard under the law. But that still doesn't answer the theological question, right? And I can tell that some of my uh, older people in here are getting nervous about this, especially when I say that tithe or tenth is not the most important thing in the New Testament. But there's a theological question, and that's this. Is there still a place for tithing in the age of grace? And I would say to you, absolutely. If grace giving exceeds tithing, does that make tithing irrelevant for a Christian? And the answer to that question is a resounding no. Let me quote from you Gene Getz's book on the theology of material possessions. And I like it. You know why I like it? Because you need to think correctly about God. And the reason most people have such a hiccup with a string tied to their wallet is because they don't understand God. You say, well, that, that hurts, preacher. Well, I'm just telling you like it is. You don't understand it. If you've got a problem in the area of giving, and you squeeze that nickel so hard the buffalo runs off of it, right? <laughs> if you've got that problem, and I start talking about giving, and it bothers you so bad, then you've got a problem thinking correctly about God. Okay? So I love his title. Think, theological, thinking about God and material possessions. And folks, you, told me, you tell me around here that you love the Word, right? If you love the Word, then you've got to think correctly about your material possessions as well. If you don't, then don't give me the stuff about you love the Word. No, you only love that part that's easy for you to digest. But when the issues of material possessions and the teaching of the Word comes into collision course with your mind, you're just going to, Lord, you can touch everything, but you're not touching my finances. Well, that's hypocritical, folks. 
That's rather hypocritical if we've got that attitude. If you love the Word, you want to hear what God has to say about material possessions. And here's what Gene Getz says. God's plan for Israel in the Old Testament serves as a foundational model regarding the way Christians should view and use their material possessions today. To be God-fearing Jews simply meant that these people were committed to do everything they could to keep the Old Testament laws. We certainly assume that most of them, before they met Jesus, now think about that time before the resurrection and before the book of Acts in chapter 2. Think about these Jews who had not personally trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We would assume that before they came, became Christians, they practiced the Old Testament regulations regarding tithing. Wouldn't you all think that's the case? They rigorously would have done this. But when they became believing Christians, I like to call them completed Jews, they would have naturally transferred their economic loyalty from Judaism to Christianity. It's no wonder that we see such generous people in Acts chapter 2. Right? What they rigorously did under the law, they did super abundantly when they got to Acts Chapter 2, they were in the habit of giving regularly and systematically. It was part of their commitment to Christ. Furthermore, when they understood the grace of God, it appears that they calculated more than tenths. But on certain occasions in Acts, they sold a piece of land and gave every dime of it. Oh my goodness, really? Yes, they sold a portion of property and gave it all. And then you've got the recorded instance where there's the first slaying in the Spirit. When Ananias and Sapphira lied about what they gave. You know, that is the first recorded time in the Bible where people were slain in the Spirit, right? They died! Yes, that's slain in the Spirit because they lied to the Holy Spirit. So, Gene Getz is spot on in my opinion. Though the tithe system is never mentioned, not that system in the New Testament... It was certainly influenced. It certainly influenced the Jewish Christians. In turn, church history reveals that the Old Testament teaching and pattern or model of tithing was taken up by the community. When a pagan would become a believer, they would begin to tithe. So the tithe laws were never perpetuated in Christianity as they were in the Old Testament, but they serve as an incredible model for Christians to be regular and systematic in their giving. We cannot ignore this model that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 on the first day of every week. Uh, on the first day of every week, each one of you should take a, uh, lay aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So today's Christians, he would say, con- should consider this a model when determining their own commitment to give. I would summarize it this way. The Old Testament, we have a command to tithe. In the New Testament, we have a model In the Old Testament, we had a flat 10%. In the New Testament, we have unlimited, proportionate giving. What percentage, what was a percentage, now becomes a proportion. Y'all understand that? Everybody good with it? Still believe your Bible? 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's conclude with this incredible text. That means you only have to go to the next neighborhood over, right? Just take a... Turn a page and go to 2 Corinthians. As a matter of fact, the most systematic approach to all giving is found in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Those chapters are phenomenal. On your own time, please read chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. What about this blessing that is promised in the Old Testament? That God promised His people that He would open up the heavens like floodgates and pour down on His people a blessing they would not be able to... Just bless our socks off. And we say, what about the New Testament? 
Malachi says, put me to the test. I'll open the windows of heaven. Is there any blessing promised to generous givers in the New Testament? It's a good, valid question, isn't it? Listen to chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Let's stop there for a moment. Whoever sows sparingly will, uh, sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Isn't this pretty clear in the Word? I mean, it's directly in the subject of giving. And he says if you give sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. If you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. Each man should give what he has purposed in his heart to give. Notice this, not reluctantly. I mean, folks, I've been around Baptists a long time, and some people, again, they squeeze the buffalo off that nickel, right? I mean, it, it, it is so begrudging. It is so, uh, it, it just gets them, their, their neck gets hot and firing red. and just bothers them to have to turn loose of it. It's fairly clear here. If you sow a lot, you reap a lot. This is what the text is saying. Notice what he adds down in verse, nine, verse 8. And God is able to make, folks, check this out. Notice the emphasis on all. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Don't you love that? All sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Don't you love the all part? Folks, this is connected to giving and it's connecting to sowing sparingly versus reaping. Sowing and reaping, the law of the harvest. And then he tells us, he gives those repeated alls. There are four of them. All grace, all things, all times, all that you need. But that's not all. Drop down and read verses 10 and 11. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It looks like to me that the same promise he makes in the Old Testament is the same promise he makes in the New. Amen? He's making that same promise. Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store. It sounds so much like Malachi 3. I think we have the same basic principle given in the New Testament as we do in the Old. God promises to abundantly bless Christians who practice generous giving. Now please note something. The blessings are not always material. Be real careful. I'm not Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland or Joel Osteen or any of the health and wealth guys. That's not what the Word of God teaches at all. Sometimes Christians who give very generously undergo incredible suffering. Giving is no guarantee in your life that you're suddenly going to live a life that's a bed of roses. But don't let that fact mislead you. We can believe the Bible. Anytime you dare to give generously, God will never, you will never regret it. God will be no man's debtor. What does that mean? He will pay you back. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give! And it shall be given to you. Pressed down, running over, shaken together. In the measure you give, it shall be given into your lap, into your bosom. Folks, that is a promise from the Word of God. How, does, you know, how God does that, He may not do that materially, but I'm just going to tell you like it is. I've been blessed beyond measure in my life, I think, because I've been obedient in this area. It hadn't always been material. As a matter of fact, it's rarely materially. 
But all the other blessings in life are so much important than money. So much more important than money. How God blesses you is His business. But I can tell you this, on the authority of the Word, He's promised to do this. But these, these verses in 2 Corinthians 9 tell us that God will do it. Now, let me give you some concluding thoughts. What is a command in the old is now a model in the new. What was a percentage in the old is now a proportion in the New Testament. What was a promise in the old is still a promise today. Given to us by God. Those who put God to the test in the area of giving, giving will never be disappointed. Beyond this, think about this. There are two extremes that we need to avoid in our church. Here's your pastor sharing his heart with you. Two extremes that we need to avoid when it comes to tithing. In the words of Larry Burkett, the late Larry Burkett, the first extreme is the danger of giving a strict 10% and viewing the other 90% as yours. Because none of it's yours. And sometimes we think about this. Well, I'm going to give 10%. I can do whatever I want to with the other 90. No, folks. Everything you have belongs to the Lord. Everything you have. The other extreme is using a lack of standard, the tithe, as an excuse to give almost nothing to the Lord and selfishly hoard it to yourself. And I've seen that before. People think, well, if I don't see tithe written in the New Testament, it doesn't blatantly say I have to give it, then I'm just going to tip God with that 20 when He comes by with the offering plate every time. Folks, you're doing yourself and the Lord's work a disservice. And so I think we need to avoid those. Let's avoid those two extremes of either being legalistic about the tithe, right? Or saying, since there is no standard, I can throw in whatever I want to, and it doesn't make any difference. Here's the second conclusion. There's no contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament as long as we do not apply the teaching of the tithe legalistically and make it a burden around people's necks. God never meant it to be a burden. He meant tithing to be a way where you become a conduit of the blessing of God. And some of us have never learned that. You know why? Because we don't trust God. I'm going to tell you like it is. We trust Him in so many different areas. We trust Him with our salvation, but we won't trust Him with our treasure. It's quiet in here. Any amens? Amen? Now now I'm going to preach harder if you say amen. All right, the tithe remains the best and the most accurate and most effective guide and standard for Christian giving. I do believe that. When all things are taken in consideration, I believe the tithe remains the best and the most accurate standard and model and guide for Christian giving. And I urge you to practice it in your own personal life. I don't make any bones about that. I urge you to practice at least tithing in your own personal life. Larry Burkett again says it best. As best I can tell, God never asks less than 10% from anyone. But if that bothers someone, I can see no reason why you can't give twice as much. And I agree with that. So, as to how much any New Testament saint should give, there's no indication in the Word of God about amount laid down in the New Testament. And to say tithe might tend to lead to legalistic people where we condemn people if they don't give 10% or we give our 10 and we never give above our 10, which is not generous giving. So, it could easily become legalistic But surely no consecrated Christian will give any less than Israel gave to God under the law. Because grace exceeds the law. Right? 
So I conclude by saying that the tithe is the most accurate guide for Christian giving. It is a beginning point in the life of a believer. But I don't want you to be under a a burden. I don't want you to be under compulsion or give begrudgingly. I think the tithe is meant to be a blessing to you. And we need to learn that instead of a straitjacket. If you hear what I'm saying and you're feeling all this pressure about turning loose of your money, you'd be better off to give 1% with joy than to give 10% begrudgingly. Because, folks, let me just tell you like it is. This is not a legalistic thing to the Lord, and He knows the intents of your heart. You can hide it from everybody else you want to hide it from, but you can't hide it from Him. And He's the one that we're ultimately trying to please, right? You are free in Jesus Christ to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in this area. I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. I can only add a testimony to that. I started picking up two-by-tens when I was 14 years old. I learned how to run a skill saw, and I learned how to build houses, and I worked. And the very first thing I did when I got my check every week was to pay a tenth to the Lord. At 14 years old. When Nathan and I got married, I was 20 and she was 18, and she tried her best to keep me from tithing. (laughs) Y'all know that's not true. And we've been married going on 26 years, and we've been faithful to give 10% of our income for over 25 years. And I've never been disappointed one time in my God. Right? So personal testimony. It ought not be an option for a child of God. It ought to be the first thing that you do in honor of the Lord God. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to read your Bible. You don't have to believe your pastor. I want you to read your Bible and come, over, come out with a conclusion about what your life is supposed to look like in reference to the God who saved you. Material possessions, everything. I want you to study your word. It's a, it, it is your money, right? It's a critical issue. But I want to encourage you to study the word. You can take my word for it because I think everything I told you is right. I really do. Because it's on the authority of the word. However, you've got every right in the world to read the Word for yourself and come up with your own conclusion of how you're going to honor God in that area. And here's what else I want to invite you to do. Are you all ready? I want you to take a 90-day tithing challenge. I saw heads go down. Here's how it works. For the next 90 days, commit yourself to give at least a tenth of your income to the Lord. And at the end of that 90 days, you can either keep tithing or you can quit. It's that simple. You'll never know whether tithing works for your life until you do it. You're never going to know the blessings that can be poured out in your life until you obey God. So you can have, you have nothing to lose, and if God's Word is true, which I believe it from my radiator to my tailpipe, you have everything to gain. You have nothing to lose. You have everything to gain. Put God to the test and see what happens when you obey the Lord God, even with your pocketbook. And look, last verse of the giving chapter. You've got to see this. Chapter 9, verse 15 of 2 Corinthians. Look at it with me, and we're done. 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Y'all still there? Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Any good Baptists know what gift that is? That's Jesus. Yes. 
That's Jesus Christ given to you as a gift. And in that text, God is the one who's thanked, right? God is the glorious giver. Right? Christ is the gracious gift, and we ought to respond with glad gratitude. Mm, Just think about that. Well, that changes our perspective that all of our giving is really in response to the most incredible gift that could ever be given to us. The Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that He's delivered unto us. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, 90-day challenge. You say, when do I start? Whenever you want to. The sooner the better, if you believe the Lord. And I wanted to teach this as we entered into this stewardship thing, because, folks, this is where it all starts. I'm a firm believer that we never have to have a stewardship drive or campaign if everybody in the church would be faithful in their giving. We would have so much funds to do missions in Mexico, brother, right, Philip? We could be all over the world doing things for the king. We'd have this debt paid off at this church. It'd be gone. No, no chained person, not chained at all to debt as a church body if we'd all be faithful in the area of giving. Amen? Amen. Hey, that's what I want to be. That's what I practice in my own life. I'm just asking you to come and go where your pastor goes. Amen? As your shepherd. That's what I'm asking you to do. Take that 90-day challenge. Believe the Lord God. And at the end of 90 days, didn't work for you, then just go ahead and quit. That'll be just fine. I mean, I'll tell you that because that's what the words mean. If you're going to give it begrudgingly, you might as well keep it in your pocket. All right, invitation. Maybe you want to say to the Lord, Father, everything belongs to you. And in this invitation, I'm consecrating, like we've heard in the songs, You know, 2 Corinthians, they gave themselves first to the Lord. Folks, if we don't give ourselves first to the king, then material possessions don't mean anything. We've got to give ourselves first to the Lord. And maybe that's what God is calling you to do. Just a reorientation, rearrangement of all of life to get your priorities in line with who God is. Amen.